Good evening. This is a reading from the New Testament, Romans chapter 14, verses 1 through 23. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God, while the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself, and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and lived again that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer. But rather, decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it unclean. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. So do not let what you regard as good be spoken of evil. Of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then, let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Do not, for the sake of food, destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean. But it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. It is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. The faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. But whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats, because the eating is not from faith. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. This is the word of the Lord. Okay, will you pray with me? God, we are so in need of your wisdom, each of us, in our lives. We come as very needy people today. People that don't have all the answers. Uh, People that uh, need you to speak and release us from things that are false and bring us into things that are true. Namely, Christ, who is the way, the truth, and the life. We thank you in advance. For Christ's sake, amen.
Okay, here's a list. Drinking alcohol. Socially smoking. Going vegan. Eating veal. Hunting. Watching horror movies. Breastfeeding or bottle feeding. Public education, private education, or homeschooling. Voting Democrat or Republican. Singing traditional hymns or contemporary. Preaching line by line or by paragraph. Now, that's just a small list of the things I have heard in my time in the church. Uh, opinions that people hold so strongly, they would say, this is right and this is wrong. Uh, opinions that often divide Christian communities have even split churches in two. But they are things I would say Romans 14 tells us are matters of conscience, as Paul would say in verse 1, uh, or disputable matters. There's a Greek word, adiaphora, that means morality that neither is required or forbidden. We talk about these things as gray areas, right? And it's a challenge because uh, I, I had an ethics professor that used to say the thing he dreaded the most was basically the phone call he would get asking him to weigh in on one of those gray areas. Because we're not just told what to do, but this is part of God's maturity. When kids are really small, we give them very clear do's and don'ts. When God's people were in their toddlerhood, the time of Israel, he gave them very clear do's and don'ts. But in the age of the Spirit that we're in, where Jesus Christ has died, risen, and gone to heaven, we're now called to the art of godly living and thinking. But it takes us into this area of what do we do about these disputable matters. In Paul's day, some of the matters were, are Christians still obligated to observe Jewish holy days? Or could Christians buy leftover meat from pagan sacrifices? Because that meat had been dedicated, so-called, to, to gods. But whatever the day, whatever the issue, these so-called gray areas become really big areas, really tense areas. And here's the insight that I think Romans 14 brings to us. We think it's primarily about right or wrong, or primarily about preference, but what Paul tells us, it's actually primarily about acceptance. How do we understand acceptance before God and one another? Or as Paul said early in the first chapter, uh, first 11 chapters of Romans, how do we understand the basis upon which you and I are justified before God and men? And so Paul applies this gospel principle to two groups, the weak and the strong. Now by the weak, he means those that have a weak view of Christian freedom those that have strict views of what's permissible and what's not. The strong in this case are those that understand there is certain Christian freedom, but both groups still have their respective temptations and obligations. Whether you consider yourself the weak or the strong, and the truth is we're probably both and. So what I'd like to do is for us to look at what are those temptations and obligations when it comes to the weak and the strong. So let's look at the temptations first. On the surface, the weak can appear very diligent 
and very meticulous because they care about issues and they care about holiness and godliness. The Pharisees would be an example, the religious leaders in Jesus' day. Now, oftentimes we can look back at the Pharisees and think that they sort of walked around and said, I'm going to be a legalist. Ha ha ha. You know, this is really enjoyable. That isn't what they were like. They were sincere men of God. They cared about the law of God so much that they said, we ought to build safeguards around the law of God because it's so holy. If you care about something, right, you put a little bit of a a boundary around it. It'd be sort of like, um, you know, we have a rule in this church, uh, hide your cups right now. We're not supposed to drink in the sanctuary, okay? So we have everybody now, right? So imagine we do this. We've got this rule um, that you can't have drinks in the sanctuary. And we go, okay, that's a good rule. Imagine it's a good rule, okay? And... uh, it's Calvary's rule, and that's a good rule. I'm going to get myself in trouble. It's their rule, and it's a good rule, and it's their church. So just back off, okay? <laughs> so anyway, the point is this. Um, imagine if what we said was this. Um, this is a good rule. Well, if we don't want drinks in the sanctuary, it probably makes sense that we'd also say, let's not have drinks in the narthex too. In fact, if we really want to be careful, let's not have drinks in the fellowship hall. Because if we want to protect not having drinks in here, in fact, if we really want to be careful, let's say there could be no cups in the building whatsoever, right? And so you just keep building these things around what was a good principle. And before you know it, the biblical principle has now become equal to the application of it. And that's the tricky part of this thing. The temptation of the weak is to take a biblical principle, a command, and say it must be applied in this way. For instance, the Bible says that you shouldn't go get drunk. And so the weak might say, therefore, you shouldn't drink alcohol at all. Or the Bible warns us you shouldn't get into unnecessary debt. But the weak might say, well, therefore, the Bible says that you shouldn't carry any debt. Christians shouldn't have debt. And these are things that you'll hear in Christian community. Or let me get a more contemporary issue here. Uh, be, you know, Someone might say, because the Bible is pro-life, and it is pro-life, because the Bible is pro-life, a Christian should not vote for a candidate or a party who is not pro-life. Now, do you see what happened there? And I know I'm getting touchy areas. you see what happened here? They took the principle and said, the only way to be an advocate for pro-life is to vote this way, forgetting that there might be other ways to be an advocate for it, or that there might be other ethical issues in the Scripture that are represented in the other party. But instead, the one who's weak is going to say, no, because this is here. Or we'll take another example. Because the Bible is compassionate and and speaks about justice for the alien or immigrant, the weak conscience person would say, therefore, the Bible says that anybody that votes for the candidate or party that isn't in favor of immigration is ungodly. They're not Christian. And so it's this idea that I take the principle, which is a good principle, but then my application of it is just a one-way street. This is the only way to do it. So, what's subtle about this is something even deeper. And that is, Paul would say, when you and I do that, we are actually elevating ourselves to the place where we would say, my preference is your master. You need to serve my preference. He says this. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? They're not your servant. 
It is before his own master, God, that he stands or falls. And he will be upheld for the Lord is able to make him stand. Now, why does the weak go this way? A couple reasons. One might be just lack of biblical training. And so I will often say to people, you know, the first thing you need to do in one of these areas is educate your conscience. You want to educate your conscience biblically. A second reason may be self-righteousness. So, for instance, um, I grew up, you know, not as a Christian. And uh, my early years in high school and early years of college, I misused and abused alcohol. And then, you know, I came to a point where God began to convict me about that. So I needed to separate myself from that. And, you know, sometimes you need to separate yourself from something because it's vulnerable. So that's what I did for several years. But during those several years, I then began to judge Christians who drank alcohol. Right? I began to say, it's never the best biblical choice to drink alcohol. I had, my weakness had become self-righteousness and judgmentalness. Another reason, and I think, by the way, we do this with personalities, too, where we sit there and we will kind of, uh, I had a seminary professor that said, I think half the fights that happen in churches are really personality, not theology. You know, there's a certain person that sees things just sort of black and white, and we go, he's a legalist. And there's a certain person that's a little bit more comfortable with the gray areas, and we go, man, he's liberal. We're just very quick to do that sort of thing. Another reason, I think, that the weak go this way is out of a need for security and control. So uh, imagine this, uh, a church with a majority culture. Maybe it's a majority culture race in America, a white church. Maybe it's majority culture theology, but they become inflexible about their worship style. Why? Well, they'll say because it's biblical, but really it's because they want to keep cultural power. You know, they don't want the culture of their church to change. And so this preference becomes a law. Or parents. You know, uh, new parents, no one feels more out of control than a new parent. You know, no one feels more fearful than a new parent. And so they are hungry and clutching to say, tell me what to do. And you'll find all these parenting books that basically will tell you what to do. What happens, though, is once you commit yourself to that way, because you're wanting to not screw up your kid and do a good job, you'll find another parent that's doing it a different way. And it kind of makes you nervous. It begins to shake your confidence in what you're doing, because they're doing it. And what has happened? I have staked everything, basically, on my preference out of security and control. And the danger of this, just to finish out this thought, is... You know, when we teach, for instance, a child something is sinful when it's really not, we put them in danger in two ways. One, we burden them with false guilt. So they end up feeling like, you know, well, I've already screwed up. Why don't I just keep screwing up? When they didn't screw up at all. Or another thing we do is we become so strict, they begin to believe that freedom must be sin. Now, let me give you an example. I mentioned to you uh, back in the fall that for a short time I was involved in what I would call a cult, a Christian cult. And uh, they were very legalistic, very strict, everything from, you know, uh, anyway, long list. I won't go into it. So years later, I go back up to Boston. This was in Boston. And years later, I go back up as a minister and I start a ministry. And one day I'm going through the subway system and I hear this group singing. 
And immediately I felt this like, because <gasps> I knew it was this ministry. I knew that was one of the ways they kind of did their thing. And I walked up, and believe it or not, I mean, this is 1985 was the first time I was in contact with them. This was 1997. I walk, and there's one of the guys that was in that church in that group. And I go up to him, and I go, you know, you probably don't remember me, Mark, but I, I was sort of in this church for a while. And he said, what are you now? And I said, I'm a Presbyterian minister. And he went, no, he didn't do that. But... um <laughs> You know, so he, uh, and I began to ask him about all the leaders that were over me. I said, well, what happened to Noel? Oh, it's terrible. He, he uh, left his wife. He's into immoral living. What happened to Annie? Oh, it's terrible. She actually headed into this addiction. What happened to Robert? Oh, Robert, uh, he began drinking, taking drugs. And I realized, well, it's sad, but it made perfect sense. When you think, you know, the only free, when you think that righteousness is only legalism, sin becomes freedom to you. It's the only way out. I think the reason this guy could hang in there is he was just like very laid back. He had a very laid back personality, and I think he could just sort of cruise with things. And so the weak can get into all sorts of danger that way. Now let's talk about the strong. The temptation of the strong is to despise and even destroy the weak. Uh, Paul says that uh, he mentions to the... Um, the weak, or rather the strong, their tendency to look down, to disdain. Uh, the strong are going to look down on the weak and say, you can't handle the maturity and freedom that I have. You know, you can't handle hanging with the crowd that I hand, hang with. You can't handle enjoying the freedoms that I do, you know, things like that. Um, I remember when I was a minister with a campus ministry, and uh, the coordinator once said to a group of us ministers, and I thought it was... He just admonished us in the perfect way. You know, it's, he said, you know, please do not reduce Christian freedom to beer and cigars. You know, please do not say that that is what Christian freedom is the sum total about. And, you know, he was really getting at this like superficial view. And, and the strong can have that problem. And what happens is the source of their freedom becomes the source of their pride. They become prideful. And they risk harming the faith of the weaker. Paul uses such a strong word. He says it a couple times, destroy. Verse 14, I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in, in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it is unclean. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. But what you eat by what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ has died. You know, most, I would say in our day, uh, we probably have greater problem with freedom. And uh, in fact, I think freedom might be the new weakness, the new weak brother. Jaron Bars, who spoke at a retreat of ours and was a professor of mine, said this, the primary idol in American culture is that I am free to do what I want to do. Something like 98% of Americans will say that they believe that they have the right to have control over their own lives. That includes the overwhelming majority of Christians. Yet God is the one who is in control of my life, not just in the sense that he is the sovereign Lord over history and over me as an individual, but also in the sense that he is the lawgiver and judge to whom I am accountable. To say I have the freedom to do what I want to do for the Christian, that is a nonsense statement. I think those words are true. 
You know, Jesus critiqued the religious Pharisees of his day and said, uh, you, uh, with your strict rituals, you actually sacrifice mercy and justice. And here Paul is saying to the strong, because of your freedom, you sacrifice righteousness and peace in the church. And so you see there's temptations on both sides, but let's look at the obligations. The obligation of the weak is to accept the one who has freedoms that they don't enjoy, that they wouldn't judge the freedoms of those that are fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. Verse 3, let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains. There he was talking about the strong. And let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. And then we find that same idea down in the passage, so it frames it, it bookends it, so it gives us a clue that this is the theme that Paul is going after. Chapter 15, which we didn't have time to read, Therefore welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Do you hear what Paul is saying here? The answer to this debate has to do with your understanding of how God welcomes people how he accepts people. Both the weak and the strong, at some point, when they go off the rails, they believe that the basis of acceptance is the way that you live, especially the weak. You must live this way, or I won't accept you, or God won't accept you. But the gospel teaches the exact opposite. It says our ultimate acceptance is in the way Jesus lived for us, in the death that Jesus died for us, that God has welcomed you and I by grace. You and I haven't been able to maintain any of his commandments as we should. And yet by grace, he has accepted us. We are justified through his son, Jesus Christ. And behind that becomes this idea that Christ fulfilled the law. I had that Old Testament passage read that talked about you know, food that is unclean for a purpose. Yes, God had that law in the Old Testament because he was trying to teach his people through object lessons what it means that he's holy and they're not. And they can't just approach him without having a mediator. But after the mediator Christ comes, when you come to the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says that he has fulfilled all righteousness. And therefore, there are no more unclean foods because that object lesson is over and the Christ who has come, the real lesson, has appeared and he has cleansed us. And so it changes our view about what's clean and unclean. We don't look at things inherently that way. Politics, art, film, alcohol, sex, whatever it is, inherently none of those things are evil. It's how they're used. It's how they're applied. The way God does it. And the way we begin to do that is by understanding the priority of the gospel. In the book of Corinthians, Paul says, I have come to resolve, I've resolved to know nothing but Christ Jesus and Him crucified, His death and resurrection. Now what in the world does that mean? Paul knew tons of stuff. All this theology. In fact, in Corinthians, he's hitting all these issues, like sexuality and money and lawsuits and all this stuff. What did he mean? By that he was saying, the thing on the top of my priority list is Christ his death and resurrection for my life and my salvation. And when you become a Christ-centered, grace-centered person, it helps you order all those other preferences and convictions. 
The longer we get deeper in the gospel, we begin to go, you know something? The kingdom of God isn't about eating and drinking. It's not primarily about Republican or Democrat. It's not primarily about, you know, white and black. It's primarily about Christ and the kingdom of God. And then Paul goes on to tell us, the one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God, while the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself, and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord. If we die, we die to the Lord. Do you hear what he said there? That Christians, two Christians, might have the opposite belief and opposite behavior and still please God. One might say, I'm not going to do it. The other might say, I am going to do it. But both please God because they do it unto him. It really gets down to motive in worship. We can still please the Lord. This is what's behind this idea of in a verse, a very important verse uh, 23. Whatever is not of faith is sin. That is a verse I regularly come back to in my life. Whatever is not of faith is sin. What does that mean? It means this. If you truly believe something is wrong and immoral, but it's not immoral, if you do it, you've sinned against your conscience. Let me say it this way. Not because it's wrong, but you thought it really was when you did it. The thing wasn't wrong, but you thought it really was when you did it, and so you did sin against your conscience. What I would say is you need to educate your conscience, and you'll knock that one out too. But the other part of it is those of us that are convinced about our freedoms in Christ. One says, I'm not going to do it, can please God. One says, I am going to do it, but maybe not please God. Eating and drinking in faith, that's a wonderful standard. You know, I, I, can, um, I can enjoy a Netflix series in faith. But there are times I can watch TV not in faith. Because I'm just trying to escape. I'm lazy. You know, I just don't feel, I feel like staying up and not going to bed. You know, I can eat a pint of ice cream in faith. I can eat lots of, I think you can. I can eat a pint of ice cream in faith. I can eat lots of ice cream not in faith. Comfort food. You get my point. So you need to be asking yourself, am I doing this out of trust and thanks to God? That becomes the question of, can I do this or shouldn't I do this? But let's talk about the obligations of the strong to close. Their call is to bear the weak and not cause them to fall. Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. That word stumbling block in Greek is scandalon. You know, we get the idea of scandal from it. Don't scandalize the conscience of the weak with your freedom. Now, what's interesting about that is that word is used in the book of Corinthians about the gospel. It says that the gospel of Jesus Christ, the gospel of grace, is a scandal. It's a stumbling block to people that want to justify themselves by their own wisdom and smarts or their own power. People that want to justify themselves by the way that they live will be scandalized by the gospel of grace. Today, the Christian gospel of grace is just as offensive. You walk into a room of very accomplished, achieving people and say, you know something? All the achievements and accomplishments you've made aren't going to help you at all when you stand before God. Even if the world's applauding you and going, you're the best, it doesn't mean the angels are applauding you. 
I mean, in the end, all of us bleed self-righteousness. You might be the most easygoing, Hakuma Matata, you know, liberal-minded person in the world. I promise you, you're self-righteous. You might be the most conservative type person. That, well, you probably know you're self-righteous, or maybe you don't. I don't know. <laughs> the bottom line is, it's the same thing. It's the, it's the same thing without Christ. So Paul says, if you want to really scandalize someone the strong, scandalize them by your love and your willingness to give up your freedom for them. Blow them away by the fact that you would forgo your freedom because it's more important to guard their conscience where it is. Now, I will say, it's one thing to forgo. Uh, Paul would handle it differently. For a legalist who was really preaching a false gospel, he would not give up his freedom because it was a matter of gospel integrity. But to help a brother and sister where they're at, that's a willingness to say, I will forgo this. I know this brother and sister struggles with that. So he says, we who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who approached you fell on me. Jesus took the reproach. Jesus is the ultimate example of this. He is the strong. He's the one perfect in his conscience before God. And yet he comes and he gives up everything. He gives up his glory. You know, he gives up, no one even knows who he is all his life, most of his life. A couple times his disciples get it and go, whoa, he's never getting the glory he deserves. Everywhere he goes, he's running to people that resist the kingdom of God that he's going to die for. But Jesus lays these things down for the weak, for you and I. And he's just so patient with us. I mean, I, I think about the things that I said as a younger Christian, you know, as a weak Christian, and the things that I would just, legalism I would lay on people. And I'm sure in five years from now, I'm going to hear the things that I've said to other people and go, huh, he's so patient with us. Why, does, why is this so critical to close? You know, we talked about this last week. Um, there are many things that can threaten the unity of the body of Christ. And those things typically that do are these issues. Chapter 14, I think, is one of the most critical chapters for Christians because when you think about arguments and division and dissent, whether they're about theology or worship style or politics or whether someone went to a march or a rally or inaugural ball, all these different things that get us upset and get us divided, many times are Squarely in chapter 14. There are things of preference. They're disputable matters. Now, what happens is, you know, you had a good principle. I had a good principle. And I began to think about it, and I became passionate to it, and I dedicated myself to it, and before I knew it, I couldn't separate the principle from the law itself. The gospel will take us back, and every day it's a thing we got to do. We need to be asking ourselves the question, is this passion, is this thing that I'm hot about, is this thing that I want other people to conform to, is it really explicitly scriptural? Or are there other Christians that believe different ways? This is a spirit of humility that I pray will pervade our body, pervade our souls. Let's pray. We do ask, Lord, um, for the strong and the weak, and especially those of us, uh, because we have both in us, 
that you would master us by the gospel. And we would become a community that's just not lax, but is wise. A community that is justified by grace alone. That enjoys our freedom in Christ, but is willing in a moment to lay it down for a brother and sister. And we ask this in his name. Amen.